Hello and welcome to the Reverend Hunter podcast. This is Tony Jones. I'm the Reverend Hunter. And I'm joined, as always, by the Cato to my Green Hornet, Brandon. <laughs> I, th- I thought you were going to say my Cato to the OJ. But, uh... <laughs> oh, Cato Kalen. Yeah, That's exactly. another good sidekick. <laughs> no, not at all. Kato, uh, no, I'm, not a good know, sidekick. The, the, I have not seen the Green Hornet either. I feel like every week, like I, I just don't get enough media in my life because I. I oh, you, <laughs> dude! Oh, you, you live your life with headphones on, so I think you get plenty of input. That's true. That's you, you true. Pro- probably need some more silence. Uh, you, this goes back to like uh, old school, you know, like in the '60s television show when Bruce Lee was Cato, the sidekick to the Green Hornet. All right, I'll, you know, then that's a compliment. Anything Bruce Lee does, I'm all for. Bruce Lee was solid, yeah. So he's a cool dude. Well, ha, um, uh, it's it. We were we were supposed to have hunted this week, you and me, along with uh, Scott and Travis from the Flush, and it was canceled by this brutal cold snap of weather we're having. Yeah, so I, I'm I'm sorry about that, man. That's quite all right. I uh, I. Wouldn't have wanted to be out hunting and that stuff either. That's that was ridiculously cold. I had to shovel, I had to walk my dog, and it was it was pretty bad as was. So, yeah, it's still bad as we're recording this. And I think as this gets released on uh, the day after Christmas, I think it'll still be cold. But then we got kind of a warm up trend, and I'm as as listeners will remember, uh, Crosby was injured, and so I had to miss a trip to south dakota for pheasants so i'm hoping to go out the week between christmas and new year's my kids are all going to be gone uh in florida so i might drive to south dakota and hang out with my buddy jorge and see if we can't uh shoot some birds just the two of us that sounds like a really good time you know um my one of my favorite ways to hunt is late season just just jorge and me i mean you you don't have any blockers at the end of the field, you do watch a lot of roosters fly, you know, two or 300 yards ahead of you that you can't get to because you're just, it's just you following your dog, you know, but, uh, we have a great time and we always seem to find some birds. Then the fun thing about the winter is if you, if you get into them, if you find where they are, the chances are there are a bunch of them together because for instance, this super cold snap, you know, the, you, you think, how do pheasants survive when it's 15 below zero in South Dakota and there's the wind chill is 45 below zero? And they do it by getting together and getting under, you know, under the snow, out of the wind, obviously, in cattails or in tree belts where there's some thermal cover. And then they also get together and, you know, kind of pool their warmth. Uh, so that the point being, uh, they they tend to cluster up more in the winter than earlier in the season, uh, and thus, if you can get to them and find them, you can usually find a bunch of them, which is fun. That sounds like a really good plan, except for the terrain is that much more worse. But I guess you're rewarded while getting through it. Yeah, uh, probably we're going to be hunting with snowshoes on, most likely. <laughs> wow, that's something. Yeah. Um, and you and I are going to go out with those guys, hopefully to a a cough, cough, game farm, cough. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I don't know how to feel. I feel about that yet. 
it's it's probably best for me learning how to shoot and stuff yeah. at the bird in that in that regard. But part of me just wants to actually do it with a wild bird because I'd feel that much more rewarded or I don't know. It w- it doesn't feel like cheating if you do it in the wild. It almost feels like cheating by going to a cough cough game farm. Yeah, I mean, it, it cheating I it, it's definitely not hunting the way that I want to take you hunting and you have been out a couple times. But I uh, you know, game farms do have their place. We've talked about it before. For instance, dog training, it's just invaluable to be able to take your dog out, a young dog, and get that dog on a bird scent, see a bird flush, have a bird get shot, have have a retrieve. It you know, a dog like well, not not unlike a human, um, learning how to do some kind of enterprise that that combines mental and and physical. Um once they they got to do it a couple times like think about learning how to drive a car or learning how to throw a baseball or whatever for us it's the same with a dog to get them out there and get some practice even in a simulated situation um it it helps them so that's one thing and then frankly for you know young new hunters like you it gives you an opportunity to see um what it's like to have a a bird flush and you get a shot at it and stuff like that. It's a little more controlled. So, you know, we're hoping that we can say, Oh, Brandon, I think there's a bird up here. You know, you can get, get set up, get in your shooting stance and we're going to give you the first shot at it, this kind of thing. So we'll, we'll give it a try and we'll, we'll report back. Yeah, no, no, it'll be, it, I mean, it'll, I'm looking forward to it either way for sure. So it's at the end of the day, it's, it's, it's my gun accuracy. That's going <laughs> to, Oh yeah. Like for any of us. Yeah. Absolutely. Yep. That's absolutely that. That's, that's the hinge right there. Um, well, happy holidays to all the listeners. Thanks for listening. Um, and one of the gifts that you all give me in addition to rating, reviewing, subscribing, and sharing these episodes is sometimes listeners send in ideas for guests. And frankly, I cannot even remember who suggested Joel Pontius, but somebody did. Somebody sent it to me and said, look this guy up. Uh, I think I think you have a lot of overlap, a lot in common with him. And sure enough, we do. He, uh, he teaches at Teton Science Schools. He's the director of their graduate programs. And he has edited a book in which he has a couple chapters called place-based learning for the plate. So it's it, it's in a series of academic books about how different pedagogical methods of bringing students to an actual place uh, changes the way that they learn, deepens the way that they learn. And for the plate, that little prepositional phrase at the end of his book title gives it away that this is about place-based learning for grad students and for all students. Um, that involves hunting, fishing, and foraging. So it's not just taking uh, students out to a spot, uh, but immersing them in an experience that will help them understand where their food comes from, how food is prepared, um, what it takes, obviously, to dispatch an animal or to find a mushroom, um, et cetera. So 
We had a good, interesting conversation. I, I have a couple links in the show notes, including to a pretty cool essay that he wrote um, called Hearts Like This that involves deer hunting and his daughter and stuff like that. So, uh, hey, happy holidays to everybody. Thanks for listening. And enjoy this conversation that I had with Joel Pontius, the director of the graduate program at Teton Science School and the editor of the book, Place-Based Learning for the Plate. Hey, Joel, thank you for joining me on the Reverend Hunter podcast. Absolutely. So glad to be here. And happy birthday. <laughs> it's coming up. <laughs> I mean, well, it's coming up, but by the time this releases, it will be like the day after your birthday. Yeah. You know, um, I've used the Christmas Day birthday uh, as leverage to get a lot of rifles and bows, you know, mostly hunting and fishing equipment over the years. My parents would say, hey, well, what do you want for Christmas? And I'd be like, well, you know, I really want that 308 Winchester, but could you get it for me for Christmas and my birthday? So they <laughs> because were it was too big for that. just one. So exactly kind of two for one. Exactly. See, a lot of people who have Christmas birthdays or holiday birthdays complain, but I don't hear you complaining about it. Well, I mean, I could complain too, um, <laughs> but just looking on the bright side. <laughs> All right. And now where do we find you? I think you're, you're uh, based on what I read in your book, you're back in the Midwest, close to where you grew up. Yeah. So I live in Bloomington, Indiana right now, and I actually direct the graduate program at Teton Science School in Grand Teton National Park. So I'm back and forth between uh, Indiana and Northwest Wyoming, the greater Yellowstone ecosystem. And uh, tell me how, like, how often do you go back there to Wyoming? I spend about half my time there and half my time uh, here in Bloomington, oh, where I'm recording from. And so, okay. yeah, it's one of those uh, thanks COVID kind of things. It's a hybrid oh, is that right? arrangement is that, what... that, yeah, they, they wouldn't have considered it before that. Um, but now um, it's been... It's been great. I mean, it's a, a place that I started grad school a long time ago, and it's an outdoor education program. Um, so for the first week or so with my students, uh, we backpacked the Teton Crest Trail. Um, that was their uh, their class for that week and um, those sorts of things. Spent a lot of time in elk herds with them as well. Hmm. Well, I want to get into your book, Place based learning that's that's doesn't really trip off the tongue man that's like uh peter <laughs> piper picked a peck of pickled peppers place based learning for the plate but before we get to the book uh, and the subtitle is hunting foraging and fishing for food which is obviously what caught my eye and um i think yeah probably you you and I have a lot of overlap um on our interests and stuff um but before we get into that and the kind of stuff you're doing now uh you write in the book that you grew up hunting and fishing uh, I don't know if you grew up foraging as well but these are tell me a little bit about growing up and doing that and how that was a part of your um development as a young man yeah definitely um my dad I grew up hunting with his dad and he was, you know, their family didn't have much money. So uh, rabbits and pheasants were, were part of the table fair in central Ohio, uh, east central mm -hmm. Ohio, I guess. Um, and so when 
Um, when I was a kid, one of my favorite things to do was to go hunting with my with with my dad uh, rabbits first. Um, my mom's super allergic to dogs, so I got to be the dog. Um, <laughs> he would, you know, he would point out a brush pile, and I would go jump on it. And um, if a rabbit kind of skittered out of there, I would I would point and yell rabbit. <laughs> so um, a lot of good good memories there. Um, and then when I was twelve. Um, that's when we started to get into big game hunting. Um, when, yeah, we moved to Bloomington, Indiana, and there are just lots of white-tailed deer. And so mm-hmm. um, we got into that. And that's where I really found my love of hunting. Um, as, a, as a young kid, uh, we lived in Upland, Indiana, home of Taylor University. And there was a reservoir, a little reservoir on campus. And my parents would just let me roam. Um, starting when I was age, I think age seven. Um, So I just ride my bike over there and I spent all my time catching snapping turtles and uh, fishing. And um, yeah, I transported a lot of fish on the handlebars of my bike uh, back to the house. (laughs) (laughs) Wait, wait, wait wait a second. I I just, I have to be, I have to be the listener in this case. And I know every listener is like, wait, how does that even... You didn't say in a basket. You didn't. You didn't have a basket on the front of your bike. No, I had a stringer, um, and I would How just exactly they, would they that would just, work with the, the 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 pedals and the wheel and everything. They would just flap there. Um, they got kind of dried out. Um, it didn't bother me at all, but my dad would kind of side eye and be like, "Well, I don't know. Are those really in, in good enough shape to eat?" And I'd be like, "Yeah, they're just a little dried out." <laughs> Less slimy for the cleaning, I guess. I guess. Well, now you tell a story in the book that's a little bit wonderful and a little bit traumatic about your first ever deer hunt. Mm, yeah. um, your dad was out of town, and why don't you why don't you tell me tell us about that? Yeah. Um, so I went out with uh, one of my dad's friends, <clears throat> and I had been preparing for the hunt for a long time. Um, the hunt itself was was beautiful. It, um, it was one of those magical opening mornings, uh, big, fat, heavy snowflakes. Um, we got a bunch of snow just between, you know, the time that we woke up and um, the time that I got up in the tree. And um, I had, you know, a pretty, a pretty reasonable, like, expectation that if I saw a deer that I could get a shot at, I would, I would try to kill it. Um, and it was, you know, maybe a half hour after first light and, um, this, uh, beautiful little six point buck, um, walked within 15 yards of my stand. And so I, I aimed and I shot and, um, that was, it was amazing. Like I couldn't believe it as a kid that that was happening. Um, it was on public land and around Bloomington too. So, um, you don't necessarily see deer. So it was a, it was a major gift. And, um, I knew that I was supposed to wait in the tree. And so my dad's friend went and, um, he was hunting somewhere else. And uh, he came back like mid morning and, you know, I had been there. I was, I was freezing, just sitting there, um, <laughs> waiting for the guy. And, um, he kind of said, Hey, we got to go. And I was like, Hey, well, I, I shot a deer. Didn't you hear the shot? <laughs> um, and I think he thought that it was somebody else or somewhere else and okay. didn't really maybe didn't 
<clears throat> expect a deer to walk by that stand. Um, and so we got down and tracked it, you know, it was in snow. It's very, very easy to find. Mm-hmm. Um, and when we got to the deer, I was really, I was really taken by emotion. Mm-hmm. Um, just, a just a real deep sadness. Um, and I really, I really wanted, you know, I, I really wanted to cry. I was, I was deeply sad and, but I knew that I shouldn't, um, cause I was with my dad's friend. Um, and so I kind of fought back tears and, um, you know, his, his friend walked up to the deer and like picked its antlers up and scolded me and said, you know, it's not big enough. I would have let it walk. Um, and so I was really torn by that. Um, in the moment, I didn't realize um, just that my, um, you know, my natural feelings, my emotions about the experience that the loss of the life of this deer was something to be experienced and yeah. something that um, we should be present to. Um, that's a healthy thing. Um, and I also didn't have, you know, my own, my own ethics around hunting um, to know that um, there are many different perspectives on when and how and to, to select this kind of deer that you're going to, you're going to kill. Um, and really up to this day, like when I'm hunting for white-tailed deer, I'm hunting for food. And yeah. so um, I'm hunting for food and also population control. So yep. Yep. Um, I do kill a lot of younger does um, who taste great um, and have that effect on the population. And then I also uh, hunt <laughs> for smaller bucks. And um, some hunters think I'm crazy because I do see a lot of you know bigger deer and mature deer. And I love to just watch them and uh, take it in. Um and then wait for a smaller, uh, much more delicious <laughs> uh, young buck. It's, it's just kind of one of the things that I like to eat um, and that cooks yeah, up I'm, really well. I'm in the same boat with you. Okay. And I hunt. Yep, yep. We hunt. Um, and we're at my, my place. Listeners already know this, but our family land in central Minnesota is currently in a CWD watch zone. So we have... Oh, okay. Basically, that's not unlimited. It's like you can shoot one antlered and five antlerless deer every season. And the antlerless, like those surplus antlerless permits are $2.50 each. Oh, so, nice. Uh, it's not only, you know, you shoot a year and a half, a year and a half year old doe or a spike buck or something. And it's not only great meat, it's really inexpensive meat too. I mean, it's the cost of like one 30-06 bullet and $2.50. I mean, it's a grand total of about five bucks for for that deal. That's a screaming deal. Yeah, man, you can't beat the price per pound (laughs) on that. And I mean, I don't mean to like, I think you and I are, are similar in that we hold these animals and the hunting experience sacred. So I, I'm not, I don't mean to make light of it. Like I, of course, never look at a deer as, um, you know, nothing, but like how much per pound the meat is. But, um, I do, you know, it is sustenance for my family. Uh, we eat all the meat and, and I will just also say like, that what that what your dad's friend said to you is one of the all time asshole comments of hunting when people mm-hmm. say stuff like that when they look down their nose at 
the you know the the deer that somebody else shot. Uh, I I agree. Um, wow. You know, and when when people look down their nose at the deer that they shot, too. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, like especially in terms of this the trophy hunting, especially um, for antlers, and yeah, that just that the the truth that each of us, you know, we have we have one life, um, and you know when we're when we're hunting these animals, we can get close to that fact. Um, but it's almost like um, with with some of the, um, I don't know, some of that kind of a, aggressiveness or um, the inability to see the sentience in in the creature in the deer um, that that pe- that that it's it's it does become a really sad situation. Yeah. Um, and part of the reason that I told that story is because I think that um, a lot of other people probably have a, a similar story. Um, there was also just this kind of case of confusion. Um, here we are as humans, and I was a 12-year-old boy, um, and I killed th- my first large animal. And that's a sacred moment. Yes. That's a moment to really slow down and really be, um, you know, give uh, give people some space, um, to really take it in. Um, and it, you know, it's affected my own hunting practices. If I do hunt with somebody else and, um, they make, they make a kill. Um, I always back off and let them spend some time with the animal, um, alone. Cause I think that it's a, it's an important moment. Um, that's something that I always want, um, is just to, uh, to be there. Um, there's another essay that I don't know if we'll talk about it um, on this podcast or not, um, where, you know, like stopping to, as I, I wrote a line about stopping to pay attention to the silence um, that's caused by taking mm-hmm. that life. Um, and that line came from, from my own practices. And part of that just started there in that first hunt. And then later I was able to, uh, you know, re-inhabit some of those moments and yeah. um, pull them into a, into a into my own practice in a meaningful mm-hmm. way. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, now you moved west, and uh, some of your writing about your elk hunting is the most compelling stuff in in the stuff that I read out of this book. It's, I mean, everything from shooting that first deer and, and the people coming to help you get it. And I, I'd love to hear you talk about that to the, to the, you know, butchering it in the, uh, what in the garage of your apartment building. <laughs> That's <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> With not, didn't have the tools to do it. And, um, yeah, let, I'd love to hear that jump then from, cause, cause I, I will, j- again, uh, to reiterate for listeners, um, they already know this, but you don't, um, yeah, as a Minnesotan, I've been whitetail hunting for a decade now and, you know, shoot one or two whitetail a year. And it's not super challenging because we just have a great property and there's a ton of deer and they're not a very skittish animal, you know? Sure. But I did go to Colorado and drop 660 bucks on a non-resident uh, rifle tag <laughs> and spent a week climbing mountains, the San Juan Mountains, south of telluride oh beautiful smelled the musky smell 
and saw a couple cows and heard a couple bugles, but never even saw a bull. And it caused me to really recalibrate my sense of what a hunting success is because, of course, the natural thing is to say that was not a successful hunt. And, I mean, you have one of the most tragic stories I've read in in that regard in that, you know, in in another elk hunt you had. But but I had to recalibrate. It was still successful because I learned a ton and I, you know, I hope to get out there again and elk hunt, but you, you've got a lot of experience elk hunting. So I'd love to hear that jump from the whitetail to the elk hunt. Yeah. So, um, well, I guess one of the things that helped me, um, understand elk was wild turkey hunting. So when I was, uh, um, I think I was a soft or maybe I was a junior in high school and I started to pick up wild turkey hunting around Bloomington, Indiana. There's a lot of public land and a lot of hilly country and a lot of turkeys. And um, I learned later that wild turkeys and calling um, are very similar with uh, Rocky Mountain elk and calling. And just in like a elk are a lot like wild turkeys in the ways that they relate to space in the places where, you know, a bull will get hung up um, in the same way that a tom will get hung up um, and not cross the creek or not mm-hmm. step out of the, um, out into the sunlight um, or something like that. So uh, wild turkeys really helped me to, um, to get ready, I guess, for, for elk hunting. And then another thing, that happened is I spent a year um, at the graduate program at Teton Science School. It's the program that I direct now, um, which is kind of fun, kind of full circle. Um, And during that year in Grand Teton National Park, I just spent a lot of time. I was, I didn't have a license, but I was just getting to know those animals. Mm -hmm. Um, So I would spend evenings and mornings, um, you know, out in the park listening to elk, definitely during the the mating season, but then otherwise just seeking them out and um, getting close to them too. Um, Definitely in the uh, spring and summertime when, you know, they weren't as, uh, you know, you wouldn't want to chase elk in the wintertime when when you could kill them because they they just need every little drop of energy to make it through. Mm -hmm. Um, But that, that year of preparation for my first, you know, real elk hunt helped me so much. Um, just, to, you know, it wasn't like I was just showing up and, and starting. Um, I, I definitely had some, some warm up, And I also just had this, um, this relationship with elk. It started when, um, when I was 11 years old, the first time that I saw, uh, a bull elk in Rocky Mountain National Park. And I was like, oh, my goodness, Hmm. this is the coolest creature in the world. And I just want to be around them. Um, So, so yeah, there was, there was a lot that went into that. Um, But elk hunting has definitely changed my perspective on, on success too. I like how you said that Um, to the place where like the, the process is the destination. The process is the point. And especially with, um, you know, most of the hunting that I've done for elk is like backcountry style. I've got a 
backpack and a tarp shelter and um, just go in until I think I'm coming up to the edge of, of the places where the elk are. And then you spend, you know, five to nine days just following and trying to get um, in on the herds, especially during the bow season um, when it takes a lot of, it takes a lot of stocks to get um, a real opportunity on an elk. I mean, that's, that, that blows my mind, man, that you're bow hunting elk. And I, I, my brother does it too. So that equally blows my mind, but he, he's, hunting oh, you could different... do it. You could do it too. You know, he's, just... yeah, I mean, <laughs> I know I could do it, but honestly, <laughs> well, we'll get to why I haven't done it yet. Cause it actually intersects with your story, but, okay. um, the kind of bow hunting you do, it's, I mean, I couldn't get within, 300 yards of a, of an elk how many yards do you have to get to to an elk to feel comfortable taking the shot you know it really depends what the animal's doing um when i started i was comfortable taking longer shots um ironically and then as i've as i have more experience i just rather wouldn't risk it um hmm. you know i i like to i like to be within 35 um, 35 yards is a shot that I can take almost with my eyes closed, um, you know, just over and over and over again. And that distance also, you know, elk are not like whitetails um, in the way that whitetails will jump an arrow or um, yeah. respond all of a sudden, typically. Um, since they're a much larger animal, they're not going to respond all that much. Um, I did have one bull dodge an arrow uh one time hmm. and that was that was a wild one um i actually stalked into the group into the middle of a group of nine bulls that were on the top of this like treeless mountain um the whole thing really doesn't make any sense except for the wind was good and i took my time <laughs> mm-hmm. and i was kneeling uh with my with an arrow on my string within 30 yards of uh six of the nine bulls um and but they were bedded down and all i could see were their antlers and i waited for like an hour in this group and this bull started to stand up and i drew my bow um he was at 27 yards and it was a quartering away shot and i you know aimed to uh compensate for the angle and he looked back I released the arrow and he just jolted to the side and I watched the arrow fly down the Canyon and then (laughs) all the rest, all the rest of the bulls stood up and they just looked at me and I was just like, okay, here I am. You know, Uh, I am a human. I'm definitely a human. And they piled off the mountain. Um, it was, it was something. That's amazing. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's a little story. Um, and that was, that was a, a hunt where um, for, for seven days I was there and I had so many opportunities. But you know what? Right after that, right after I saw that arrow go down the canyon uh, and that bull, you know, just dodged it. Mm-hmm. I was like, you know what? Maybe maybe this isn't a, uh, an elk killing trip. Maybe this is just, just an elk hunting trip. And so um, I didn't pass on like easy shots the rest of the time, but I was in elk the whole rest of the hunt um, hmm. and was just, just kind of new. Like I'm going to, 
really enjoy this and have a lot of encounters, but I'm probably not going to actually kill. Um, and that's what happened. I didn't, I didn't go home with an elk. Wow. Yeah. Well, the, one of the hunts you talk about and you write about in the book, um, you did go home, but what I, and I'm not even that interested in the hunt or the kill. I'm most interested in that phone call you made to your wife and then the pack out because that's, that's some true love and friendship with those people who uh, hiked up and found you. I'd love to hear about that. Oh, absolutely. Sure. So this is the the first elk that I killed and um, it was just in some really gnarly uh, terrain. Um, I was about 3000 feet in vertical elevation from where I started in the morning. Um, then it was the way that elk hunts often go. Um, you start to, you start to find more and more fresh sign and you just, you just follow, um, you kind of follow the herd. Um, and so, you know, when I finally did make this kill, it was five, about five miles, five mountain miles. So like five miles as the crow flies and 3000 feet up, um, mm-hmm. from where my, my wife and two friends, um, were going to come from. Um, and you know, like I actually would have done that differently if I knew more, um, <laughs> about how to, uh, how to quarter elk and that, like, I, I didn't actually need to get the whole animal out in that one load. Um, right. I had more time, but since it was my first, I was just, uh, super excited and, um, yeah, wanting to get the whole animal out, um, that one's also really special because I carried the hide of this bull out and um, my friend Kevin has done a lot of tanning and we did a traditional tan on uh, that, that elk hide. And I'm still tying like elk hair caddis and other uh, flies um, out of the, out of that hide from that bull. That's awesome. Um, Yeah. And it was, it was just, it's one of those, um, one of those special moments, uh, my wife, Laura, and I hiked back to that, uh, that area, the place where I killed that bull, um, a couple different times, all in the summer. Um, and every time we, we revisited that, that location, it was like, wow, this was, this was just an incredible, uh, incredible hike that we did in the summertime when we had enough food and we had enough water. And we were really prepared for it. But yeah. I think the the overall uh, lesson that this elk taught me is the lesson that a lot of other elk have taught me is that they will take you farther than you ever thought you could go. Um, and then you have to keep going. Um, and I really value that, um, mm-hmm. you know, really like putting putting ourselves in a place of humility and the size, just the sheer size of those animals, you know, carrying one back leg can be a hundred pounds, just the, just the back leg. Um, and that intimacy with the terrain, um, and the opportunity just to be, um, just to be out in that landscape in the middle of the night and the early morning, um, in all different kinds of conditions, and especially those those mountains around the Tetons, um, 
man, the weather is just changing. Like, um, yeah, that yeah. is just fast. Um, the, the storms move in so quickly. The skies are so incredibly expressive. Um, and the animals too, you know, you can feel like you're 50 miles from an elk and then all of a sudden you're standing um, in, in the presence of an elk again, um, completely not yeah. ready for it. Um, and, you know, there's also something about that terrain where there, I mean, all the predators are still there, the wolves and grizzlies and black bears, mountain lions, wolverines even. Um, and there's something that's, that's really compelling just about that. Um, and they definitely change uh, the way they definitely change the way that you hunt and the way that you uh, pay attention uh, in the, in the environment um, specifically just because you, you know, if you cross a grizzly at the wrong moment um, that can be really dangerous. It can be life threatening. Yeah. And yep. I love, I love having that extra layer um, in those hunts of, of potentially, crossing paths uh, with all those critters. Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, if you want to know why I have not yet taken up archery hunting, just go ahead and reread your story about the elk that you wounded and lost mm -hmm. because that, and I mean, I don't want, want to rub salt. I, I salt in the wound as it were, but, uh, I appreciate that you put that story in the book. Um, and that's what frightens me, honestly, about um, – I, I have – I mean, I know it happens when you rifle hunt too. Uh, in fact, I I had two different neighboring hunters this fall call me when I was out pheasant hunting in South Dakota and say, I just shot a deer and it ran onto your property. Can I go look for it? And, it, of course, I granted them access and – uh, neither of them found that neither of them found those deer. Uh, so oh, I know yeah. what happens. Um, it does, with, you know, this one, this yeah. one was crazy because, um, I mean, I essentially, so this, this, this cow, um, I essentially watched her die, um, within 15 yards of me. Um, and then I don't, I, I still don't understand uh, because of where the arrow hit, um, I still don't understand how I didn't find her. Um, but yeah, then that's another process of of um, yeah, just just that kind of that humility of saying, "Wow, you know, here I was. I thought that I did everything right, and you know, I'm following this animal." Um, so intensely that I lose track of where I am um, and totally um, am like at the mercy of, of this place. Yeah. Um, and I, and I did decide to write about that because I think it's easy to forget those, those times where um, animals get wounded. Um, and I think that it's also compelling because that's, that's one of the most interesting parts about hunting. Um, it's, it's not, it's not a done deal. Yeah. Um, there, there is loss that happens. Um, and 
we get we experience like that full range of instincts and emotions around that um maybe even more so when we get to the point where we're on our hands and knees you know crawling uh across the land trying to find that next drop of blood um Mm -hmm. so and that was also it was a time when uh, my my first daughter was about to be born and i had all these images of like going and coming home going hunting and coming home with the meat for the family and all that stuff and it was like wow this is a different story than i Mm -hmm. thought it was going to be um and also just appreciating that, that sometimes it is a very different story than, than we thought it was going to be. Um, and that's life. And there's a lot to be learned there. Yeah. Well, I appreciate you putting that in the book because, well, now I want to, I want to use that as a transition point a little bit because, um, you know, in you're in higher education and being in, uh, higher ed is not always a super welcoming place for hunting, um, for fi- or for owning firearms either. Sure. So I'm just wondering, you know, and it's 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 a I, look. This is a this is an academic text from an academic publishing house. Um, it's meant to inspire other teachers and instructors to use place-based learning, which I want to get into. Um, but, but I just want to commend you because I think it's a pretty vulnerable thing to put in a book like this, that story. I mean, you could have left that story out and that's the kind of story that, um, I'm guessing even some of your peers in higher ed would be like, that's crazy. That's why I don't hunt, you know? And, um, so good for you, man. I, that's, Thank you. Yeah, for sure. Um, yeah, I think that yeah. there are a lot of those stories that aren't necessarily hunting stories that don't get told too. Um, you know, yeah, and higher right. ed and everybody trying to protect their ego when, you know, some of that vulnerability, we can all stand uh, to take a breath and take ourselves a little bit less seriously. And a lot of our students need that they need for us to just be like, yeah, I'm a human too. Um, here we go. Want to hear a funny story um, <laughs> or, or whatever it is. Right. Right. Yeah. Um, all right. Let's talk about place-based learning. Um, and, and because again, I just, well, one of the things that so intrigued me was um, looking at your book, you know, when it first caught my eye, because I'm like, oh Yeah. There's a lot of people out there and they're, you know, who teach and they're like pedagogically, yeah, students should like, let's uh, have all of our art history majors go to Florence, um, Italy and st- spend mm-hmm. a semester there. I mean, place-based learning, I would say, isn't a super controversial topic in higher ed, but then you're like, oh, but let's hunt, fish and forage. Like, let's, yeah, that that is a line that I think a lot of people who in theory would agree with place-based learning would, would not cross. So I'm just wondering, um, you know, how, what's the reception been for the book? What was it like gathering the other authors, getting people to commit to a book like this? And, you know, what, 
what do you what do you hope is accomplished in the publication of this book? Yeah, I mean that's a great question. The process of finding other authors was was another uh, you know good kind of hunt, um, honestly. And yeah. what what I heard from the authors that did contribute um, over and over was, "Hey, thank you so much." I really needed to write something that I actually uh, believe in. Um, so a lot of these professors are, you know, a lot of professors in that book are fairly well known and they've written a lot and they've published a lot. Um, and so to hear kind of through the process, some of these people that I respect a lot, um, just saying, um, thank you, I needed this. Um, this was one of my favorite pieces that I've ever written. Um, and then to hear later too, um, many of these uh, professors are using the chapters that they've written in their classes. Um, and to hear them say, my students connect so much with my story about uh, foraging in like urban space around mm -hmm. Portland, Oregon, or, um, yeah, there was a student that sat in the back who was always quiet until we read my piece about um, my relationship with my dad and hunting. And then all of a sudden he came out of the woodwork um, and was really participating because he felt like he was welcome there. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, in those ways, and that's that's the reason that I did it anyway, um, is to have uh, interesting text, uh, interesting narrative that can get people more excited and more interested in uh, getting out there in their places. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. Well, t tell me, you take students out, I know, do, do the students hunt? Um, what do they think about you as a hunter? Is it a shock for them? Do they go into that pro that Tetons program, Eyes Wide Open, about that? Um. You know, surprisingly, I have to think about that. I think that that there's just a lot of energy around hunting right now. Mm -hmm. And so I'm thinking about uh, my grad students right now. Um, I taught a course about place-based learning. Um, and the material that they responded to the most and had the most questions about and wanted wanted more of was around hunting and foraging. Um, almost entirely women. Um, hmm. and it was, it's just, it was surprising to me how, um, how much they're just like, yeah, I really, that's on my list of things that I really want to learn how to do, um, to be able to be closer to my food, to be able to have the skills and not have to rely on somebody else, you know, kind of like that self-reliance, um, type of mentality. And, but then, you know, in other places, uh, when I was a sustainability professor at Goshen College, um, it's a Mennonite USA mm -hmm. uh, runs that, that school. And um, I would have a lot of different students that would come into my classes, but, you know, a lot are vegetarian or vegan. Yeah. Um, and, one of their most transformative moments in their undergrad was, you know, helping me butcher a deer. And when we're butchering that deer, um, it's, you know, the conversation 
it always surprises you. Um, when I'm teaching them how to, to butcher a deer, I refer to my own body, um, you know, mm-hmm. refer to your own, your own legs. Cause we're not constructed so differently from a deer and people kind of know their own body more than they realize they do. Um, and some of the questions, some of the insights, um, just really blow you away. Um, people that maybe never would have considered that in their life, um, call the sheriff's department and say, Hey, I want to be on the roadkill list. Yeah. Um, I've had plenty of students. I get texts every fall. Um, and every, every winter from students, like in urban suburban places and like sending me a picture of them with a hind quarter of a, of a deer, like got on the roadkill list again. Um, so, so it's always surprised me. I love that that you have a, a chapter in the book by a guy who, uh, collects and cooks roadkill yeah oh yeah Uh, yeah well i did uh, let me let's talk quickly quickly about that about goshen i I, that was a curious thing on your um you know on your cv and stuff and and i know i've read one essay that you wrote that was posted at a site called christ in cascadia and Mm. is kind of a faith-based site and you taught at a faith-based school and if people don't know, you know, the Mennonite tradition is, is a, it's a pacifist, it's an anti-violent tradition going back mm-hmm. to, you know, that the, Anna, uh, the Anabaptist radical reformation after the reformation. And mm-hmm. so, yeah, I wondered, um, and you've already touched on it a little bit, but, you know, there must be students at Goshen who are very committed to nonviolence. Um, and then here they've got this professor who's, you know, going out and and killing animals and and butchering them and cooking them up. Um, so how? Tell me about some of those conversations with those students. Did you did you meet any hostility among those students? And you know, I wouldn't say hostility, but I would definitely say that there were there were people that took a little bit longer to, you know, even ask the questions or, or be, uh, be able to be comfortable talking about that. But it's interesting. Um, it's, it's like anything, some of the things that, that we might be the most closed off to, um, sometimes are the things that we need to draw closer to, um, Mm -hmm. just to understand them. Hmm. And so, um, one of the, so when it came to archery hunting, um, the students were generally like, this is legit. I love it, you know, <laughs> yeah. or, or the roadkill idea, um, yeah. which, you know, like I would, I would grab roadkill deer um, to teach a, a course on like, uh, like living skills. Mm-hmm. And if, if it was possible and um, butcher that with students. And um, so they, they were, they were big on that. Um, but then firearms, that was a that was something that a lot of the Mennonite students were like absolutely not, and right. so. Um, but I did offer. I was just like, "Hey, we have um, a place where we can safely fire guns, and let me tell you about like my setup for hunting um, large animals." And we talk about um, I shoot Barnes triple shock bullets, hundred percent copper no lead, great mm-hmm. hunting bullet, um, completely non-toxic. So 
I would talk about that and they'd be like, oh, you know, it's not just like AK-47s. Right. All right. Right. Tell me more. Um, And so just approaching it as a possible conversation um, and also challenging the students to say, hey, there are so many things we do every day that are incredibly violent. Um, You know, driving is one of them. Yep. Um, (laughs) Imagine the amount of like uh, bugs and wildlife and humans, you know, like a lot of people die. Um, A lot of animals die driving, but we don't think about that so much. And so it became just a uh, a rich uh, place for conversation. Um, And also I just love the, the students that I work with at Goshen um, and, and felt that they had, they had um, an unusual kind of depth and openness Mm -hmm to considering things and really, really digging in and not, and being a little bit less judgmental, um, at the beginning. So, so yeah, it was something that I never pictured doing. I didn't like, you know, I was like, Oh, I'm, I'm a professor now time to, you know, forage and hunt yeah. and gather roadkill for my students. It was just something that <laughs> kind of came naturally from my interests right. and, it's, I laugh about it too. It's just like, it's hilarious that that's such, uh, it's, it's so interesting. It's so interesting. and so novel. And yeah. yeah, it just really does come back to, you know, humans. We're, we're hunters, we're foragers. Um, we have this physiology. And so I think there's just a, an unending curiosity around that. Yeah. Tell me, give me the, give me the elevator pitch for place-based learning then, especially in these environments that you do it, where, whether it's, you know, teaching a student how to hunt or forage or hiking in the, in the Tetons with students. What, what's the advantage pedagogically of place-based learning? Sure. So, um, and yeah, so what's the advantage pedagogically? I think that's just the the whole engagement piece. Um, in modern Western society, we use our our eyes and our brains a lot in in terms of learning, but we have this the whole rest of our body. You know, we have all of these senses that are related to each other, um, and you know, like thoughts are actually a physical thing. Mm-hmm. So you know, it's a physical thing that's happening. And so um, my, my biggest belief with place-based learning is that we learn, we learn more deeply and more completely when we get to, we get to experience things um, as we think about them. So, you know, I've, I've done, uh, I think, some of the most interesting field trips I've ever led were in urban environments, too, in terms of place-based learning, um, going to like a like a, a chicken factory where they're killing and yep. um, parting out chickens and having that as part of a, a class in food systems. Um, and students are really seeing like this, this new sort of landscape or um, trips to Detroit and looking at um, everything from like some of the big financial institutions that, that own the downtown space 
and hired the security to, um, you know, the other side of the town where people are really struggling to keep a roof over their heads. Um, I think that it's, uh, it's a way that also provides more connection socially. Um, so the students are meeting people that they might not talk to otherwise through that kind of uh, uh, place-based strategy. Um, and one of the things that I think my students like the most about it is that once you are, are learning in that way and you kind of get that like, oh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to really pay attention to this place and I'm really going to learn from it, you can take that everywhere. Um, and you can learn faster, you can grow a community much more quickly. Um, and, you know, just that basic networking um, type of experience and, and all of that. So that's kind of a long elevator pitch. No, we're, that's we're good. On, we're on the 27th I mean, I totally floor. agree with you. I, I take... I take graduate students every year into the Boundary Waters for a canoe trip. And, uh, oh, that's great. I, yeah, I mean, I think it's um, obviously Boy Scouts and Girl Scouts do it and church youth yeah. groups go into the Boundary Waters and, and Outward Bound does it. But it's like I take people in their 50s who are getting, you know, uh, doctoral degrees at a seminary. And, uh, even, even more transformative. Yeah, no, that's what I think. I, it's, well, it's even more challenging for them for sure. Yeah. Even more frightening for them, but also just some of the very things you're talking about, like they're more attuned to their own mortality already, just mm -hmm. for the fact that they're older and, um, and of their physical limitations and stuff like that. Um, yeah, it's revelatory, man. I I'm a huge proponent. So uh, yet another reason why I was so glad to see this volume come out. Um, hey, before we go, and you know, however much you feel comfortable, sure, um, talking about this. But I wonder if whatever your faith happens to be, uh, if you're, you know, how that intersects with your hunting, fishing, and foraging, um, maybe, or maybe with how you're raising your daughters or something like that, because it's, it's, uh, I'm, I'm less involved in the church than I was by a lot. And I'm okay. much, I much more find my spiritual center in the outdoors, uh, in these endeavors, particularly in hunting, but also in canoeing the boundary waters and fishing and hiking and stuff like that. Um, so I wonder if for you, this has been something, these, these activities that are so important to you, if you've woven them into your faith life as well. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Um, and, and really the, you know, being, being on the land, um, the, the earth is just such a, such a miracle and, mm -hmm. um, you know, especially like foraging and hunting and fishing, um, it just provides this um, this reason to be out, um, kind of among the many different things that that God has made. Yeah, um, I would say that through through hunting, especially through hunting elk, um, with with everything that's involved. Um, with the actual vulnerability, you know, the actual physical danger that you're in, you know, being way in there and way far yeah. from, 
from any anybody that could help you to the way the the stars look at night with no light pollution um, to you know like how you feel when you accidentally call in a grizzly bear and not an elk <laughs> and realize at the last minute like ooh that animal's the wrong color uh oh <laughs> you know all yeah. that stuff um i would say that that hunting and fishing and foraging make me more and more um awake i guess to the the majesty of god hmm. um and it also just makes me more and more curious about um god's true character um i'm yeah, I'm, a, I'm a pastor's kid and so i grew up in an evangelical tradition mm-hmm. i'm not in that tradition anymore um but i'm in um i guess more of a um i'm not even sure what to call it but um I remember feeling the tension as a kid that like humans are definitely separate from the rest of the earth that has fallen and you shouldn't get too close to it. And I think that, um, that, uh, the, the, that faith tradition was confused about that. And so, um, as I, uh, especially as I raise my children, um, you know, my daughters now are seven and 11 and the things that they're going to face um, with uh, the extinction event that's happening now um, all around the world with, uh, you know, eight, eight billionth person being born just yep. the other week. Yep. All of these major um, events happening to for them to be able to look around and see that this world and this, the spiritual life is about more than just people. Um, it's a much bigger, more beautiful, more complex thing. Um, that's that's what, um, in a way, what I experience when I'm hunting, mm. um, and also just a deep uh, relationship or like interrelationship. Um, I think I wrote in in the book in one of the book chapters about um, moments when I when I was hearing like ravens calling, and I knew for whatever reason, kind of deep down in my gut that they were talking about a, a herd of elk that was right over in this one place and just following through um, and, and going to where the ravens were and finding those elk and, and, and ending up making a kill um, in that winter scene and just, just being um, immersed in the fact that um you know, God has made us of the same stuff that, um, same physical kinds of stuff as the ravens and the limber pine trees and the elk. Um, and I just, uh, I just think that's a beautiful thing. Um, and the, the hunting, foraging and fishing, they remind me of that, um, the most deeply every once in a while, um, you probably have this experience too, where you just get the sense that like, Oh, the chanterelles had just popped and I know it. And I got to go look in that spot. Um, or, Ooh, I'm seeing that like the wind shift and I'm looking at that 22 degree morning on November 8th. Like 
that's when I want to be sitting in that tree um, waiting for the deer to go through. Um, I think that those connections also, I think they make God happy um, because we were made mm-hmm. for it. <laughs> I love it. Yep. Well, I I agree with all that and I have a lot of those same experiences and I, I love the way that you've summed it up and I'm I'm glad that we've had been able to have this conversation it's it's been great and i just love the work you're doing uh i'll put in the show notes a a link to your book and also to your really excellent essay hearts like this about um a deer hunt and your daughter and it's just beautiful so thanks i appreciate that and yeah i really enjoy the conversation Um, thanks so much for having me yeah you bet all right take care and happy birthday thank you (laughs) 